Hey, good morning, everyone. Good to be with you. If you are new or visiting, just want to say uh, thrilled that you're here, whether you're a brother, friend, or neighbor or a coworker or family member. Just glad you're here. Uh, what this is is a worship service. We worship Jesus Christ, who we believe was God in human flesh. It did come and live the obedient life for us that we could not live in our place and died on the cross for our sins as our substitute. And he ascended and gifts his Holy Spirit to all who would trust in his name and provides reconciliation with God. So we are uh, thrilled to do that together. And so that's what you're seeing. That's why we sing the songs that we sing that talk about this guy who has done that particular work in Christ. It's why that we uh, sit under the teaching of God's Word, because uh, God is not a God who uh, hides himself but reveals himself and gives us divine revelation uh, without us needing to have blind speculation. So we find it in the, the written scriptures that are God's Word. We also observe the Lord's Supper each week. We do not believe that this imparts righteousness or uh, increases your right standing with God in any way, shape, or form. It's a gift that Jesus gave the church to be nourished in a very deeply spiritual sense as we consider and are reminded of the good saving work of Jesus Christ uh, in all that he has done. And then we finally worship Jesus by giving. We give in the silver boxes on the back wall, and we always say, if you're not a regular attender, remember, uh, we're not interested or desiring your finances or funds. We really want you to know this Jesus Christ and love him and be found in him. Uh, two things before we hit uh, Ephesians 6. We're going to start a new just six-week walk through uh, Ephesians 6, 10 to 19. I just wanted to give you guys two things coming up. Uh, March 2nd, Men's Conference. Remember that we're going to actually have the... Uh, and you can talk to Jerome for any needs. Uh, and Jerome's been working hard. We're tackling three subjects. We're doing Christ, uh, Christ, Christ, how you are a biblical man in Christ, in the church, at work, and at home. It's not a uh, three-hatted affair. It is a holistic life. And uh, Reed Monahan's going to be coming as our speaker. He's a uh, gifted brother who loves Jesus and loves particularly uh, these topics. He's going to bless the men that come. I'm so thankful for uh, all you spouses that have been signing up your husbands. It's been awesome seeing those come in. Way to be faithful wife and uh, to submit well to Jesus. Uh, as you know, this would be a good thing for them. So it's going to be a great time of fellowship, of discussion, of connection, of teaching, of worship, of uh, just a time for us for the day on that Saturday uh, to just be reminded and, and, and walk as disciples of Jesus as he's called us to uh, as men. And then uh, I just want to remind you, save the date. Uh, Ed Welch will be here on February 10th to uh, preach and teach. And if you do not know who he is, he's a prolific author, speaker, counselor. Uh, he's been used greatly in the community of Christ to bless and edify and encourage. So if you know someone in particular, uh, he's going to be really walking us through fear and anxiety. That's one of his specialties and how we see how the scriptures relate to that. Um, I would encourage you just to invite them, that they might uh, be blessed by that. I promise you that he will um, deeply edify you. It was funny. I was talking to someone earlier. Uh, who's Ed Welch? I was naming books. I've read that book. So you didn't even realize you read a book by uh, Ed Welch. So um, there, there's a great chance that many of you are aware of who he is and you just aren't there yet. So we're praying you will be. All right. Let's pray that we're going to dive into Ephesians chapter 6. God, thank you uh, for your grace. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that even in this moment can provide divine illumination, understanding to spiritual things that need to be spiritually discerned. Um, God, I pray you would do that for brothers and sisters in this room. I pray that you do that for friends in this place. I pray that even some that might not currently have a saving understanding of Jesus Christ, that you would bring them from darkness to light even in the next 40 minutes together. Father, I pray that you would help us uh, rightly understand what it is you want to say when it comes to the spiritual realm and the adversaries in ways where sometimes we want to overemphasize it and underemphasize it, Lord. Might we have a good, healthy, hearty understanding of that. Uh, even protect us as we meet, as we sing, as we study, as we learn, 
and as we grow more in the image of Jesus. It's a beautiful name we pray. Amen. Amen. Ephesians chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the back. Grab Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to walk through Ephesians 6, pretty much verses 10 to 18, 19. Uh, we're going to take about six weeks. And, and what, uh, how this kind of happened was um, we're always praying in the beginning of the years. We're mapping out just uh, the preaching schedule, what would be helpful for the church in particular seasons at particular times. Uh, and I was planning on jumping right into the prayers of Jesus, actually, this this Sunday, today, uh, where we would look at the ways that Jesus prayed and then, and then grow as we see the ways that Jesus prays, because uh, that was one burden that, that the elders really shared. The second, though, was uh, just that we were to protect season as a church where um, the more you advance the kingdom of light, the more that God begins to uh, unveil himself in, in helpful, holy, meaningful ways, there is a present darkness, there's a real adversary that hates that, that despises that, that is against that. And for us to be unaware of that, not just in our church gatherings, but in our individual lives, in our work, in our marriages, in the ways that things settle themselves would be uh, silliness to ignore that and pretend like that thing doesn't exist. And so um, I just really felt led by the Holy Spirit to do Ephesians 6, just to spend six weeks here that I pray will be fruitful. So let me give you just a bit of context for the book of Ephesians. If you're not familiar with the book of Ephesians? Uh, one, you can understand the book of Ephesians in two words. Uh, position practice. That, that is the book of Ephesians. The first three chapters of this book just roll out for you the amazing position that is yours in Jesus Christ. It just sets before you all the things that are true about you if you're a son and daughter in him. So you can read the first chapter alone. The first, I think, 11 verses, Paul gives this run-on sentence just shouting and declaring and heralding and enjoying all that's true about you. You're forgiven. You're redeemed. You're chosen. You're adopted. You're an heir. You're, you are set with Christ. You're protected. You are you are his finally and fully forever because of Christ. And then he rolls into chapter two and says, I want to remind you of how this happened. You were dead in your sin, right? In your trespasses, he made you alive with Christ. It's through faith alone and Christ alone. You can't boast in works. You can't boast in merits. You can't boast in church attendance. You can't boast in your denomination. You can't boast in your systematic theology. You boast in Christ. And then he rolls into chapter three saying, hey, you got to continually pray that God would reveal to you and remind you this amazing, ridiculous, unrelenting love of God in Christ that surpasses your knowledge. you got to keep asking him to show that to you, and then he turns in the back three chapters to how this works itself out in practice. Um, so you're going to get off the rails if you only read four through six or only read one through three. Uh, someone who only reads one through three becomes lazy and apathetic. Someone who only reads four through six becomes legalistic and exhausted. You want the whole book. These books were written where someone would read it in its entirety, right, and understand and all that God wanted to say. So understand in the back half, he says, this is how your position in Christ fleshes out in your walk with Jesus, in your holiness, in your marriage. There's the big Ephesians 5 classic marriage chapter. This is how it works itself out with parenting your children. This is how it works itself out in work. And then he's going to tie the bow here in verse 10. So understand, he's basically here in verse 10 setting up the landing gear to all that he's just said. So all that he said about your position and practice, right? So um, what he's going to do is basically say this. Yes, Ephesians deals with your salvation. 
Yes, Ephesians deals with your position in Christ. Yes, it deals with just the realities and glories of what God has done in the work of his gospel. And yes, it deals with how that bends itself into you walking a life of holiness and how it manifests itself in your work. And yes, it talks about your children. Yes, it talks about your marriage. But if you do all of that while overlooking or neglecting the spiritual realm, you might get lost. Like this is serious. Like there's a third party involved. You gotta understand in all that, it isn't just you and I and us and God. There's a third variable. There's a real enemy who seeks to devour, kill, and destroy. And he has adversaries. And Paul will say, do not neglect this. In all of what I've said, in all of what I've laid before you, there's a factor that you have to place into everything. Do not miss this. That there's a real enemy with real adversaries. Now, um, Usually there are two main errors people make when you even begin to talk about the spiritual realm or Satan or demons, right? And and you probably know what they are. Uh, The first is you just totally overemphasize him. I mean, Satan's in everything. I mean, anything you do wrong, it was a demon. So, so you're driving to Bible study, you run over a nail, you get a flat tire, it was Satan who wanted to keep you from going to Bible study. Well, that's possible, but it's also likely you're just a bad driver and you drove through a construction site, right? Like you, you got a nail. Um, Satan made me eat the donut. No, you just don't have self-control, right? Uh, Satan made me cheat on the test. No, you're a sinner. Like, like you just want to cheat. So, so you got to be careful in giving him credit where credit isn't due, where you just start blaming him for things that you need to own, okay? So the other side of it, though, is which is equally, if not, I would argue more devastating, is you pretend that it doesn't exist at all, and you neglect it altogether, uh, that isn't real, and you take media and culture and all that they've done to grow up these weird, cartoony-looking things, even though he's this glorious, gorgeous angel. Apparently, he looks green and red with horns and a pitchfork, nothing like the biblical narrative, right, just what we've kind of conjured up in our minds. So we need to know what he is and what he's done and who he is and what he's like, because if Paul is serious about this, we need to be serious about this as well. So to never give any attention, to never give, give any thought, to not try to learn and contemplate these things that are reality, that he seeks to kill, steal, and destroy... It's terribly, terribly dangerous. So every time you get shot, you'll blame God and Satan laughs. And so here's what we're going to look at. We're going to understand as we live God's will, you need to know there's God's enemy. So here's the three things you'll see in Ephesians 6, 10 to 19 over the next six weeks. Know your enemy, know your king, and know your weapons. That's all Paul says. Know your enemy, know your king, and know your weapons. Uh, let's see. He makes this clear starting on verse 10. Here's what Paul will say. Finally, it's a stake in the ground. Everything I've just said, finally, man, listen up. Troops, this is a military general giving his message to the troops on the ground as to what's to come. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. So, so there's an assumption from Paul, an assumption from the scriptures, that you're going to need strength that you don't currently have. Because there's a battle before you that will take strength outside of you. That's why he says it. That's why he says, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. It's a Christian walk for sure, but it ain't a stroll. Right? It is not peacetime, it's wartime. We're not on a playground, we're on a battleground. This is a real war. He's reminding us of this. There's a third party in all that I just laid before you. As you seek to push back darkness through the help of the Holy Spirit, as you seek to advance the kingdom of light and the kingdom of God, as you seek to be an example and a great image bearer of God in your work and among your marriage and in your home life, remember there's a third party. 
Remember, there's something else happening here. And the reason you're going to need strength is because you're going to have a lot of things working against you. Now, I mean, I don't think I need to ask anyone. You ever felt like just everything's against you right? in life, right? I mean, you ever woken up just work, pressures, demands? I mean, I mean, if you're like, that's a stroll, right? I, it's war, right? I mean, anyone ever feel, else feel like that in life? It's just an all-out war, right? And so, so there are a couple things that, at work against us. Like, number one, your sin, your own sinfulness. You don't need the devil for that. <laughs> that has enough sufficiency, right? Just your own sin, your own darkened heart. Um, you need to understand that that's the first thing that is going on. You still wage war with the residual effects of the fall. Post-Genesis 3. Uh, we do not believe that you can finally be glorified this side of glory. We believe we are progressively and increasingly made more into the image of Jesus Christ, that we grow in holiness, yet glory comes when we see him face to face, for then we shall be like him as we see him just as he is. Right? But until then, it's this, this progressive holy sweat we talked about last week of growing more in the image of Christ, using the weapons of the gospel. It's this idea of Paul, right? He says in Romans 7, I, I don't do all the things that I really want to do, and I wish I was doing the things that I should do. It's like this idea, the language in that text is like a corpse that's tied to your ankle, and you're dragging it around still, even though it's dead. It's pestering you. Right? That, that's the imagery we have. And so he's saying, you've got to be strong in the Lord. Um, so we don't need the devil for that war. Like, well, we don't need his help, Right? Uh, maybe some of you guys have been in, I don't know, denominations or backgrounds that made too much of Satan to the degree where you're not responsible for your own sin. Uh, so you're just constantly pulling out the Eve card. Nah, he made me do it, right? So uh, you get off scot-free. Well, no, he may tempt you, but you're the one who sins. Uh, he may provide opportunity for you, but you're responsible for how you react. So we have an enemy inside of us, but we also have one outside of us. He's going to say this in verse 11. That's why Paul says, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Guys, this is a serious, strong, hard word from our commander-in-chief under Jesus Paul, the Apostle Paul, running under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as he has gone around and planted churches and encourages Christians and writes them letters and builds them up, right? Here's a church in Ephesus that he founded that after he was one of the most zealous rabbis who hated Christians, he becomes a Christian. In his third missionary journey, he's telling this church, he's telling us as individuals and a collective as a whole, hey, you got to suit up because there's stuff on the ground that's happening. As you ascend the hill... Right, there's an enemy. There is someone who does not love you, who hates you. There's someone who despises you. There's someone who opposes you. There is, you are not loved by everyone and everything. Did you know that? And did you know that he's not talking about people? You don't wrestle flesh and blood. That's huge. Did you know you're not loved by everyone and everything? Did you know that you are hated, despised, and opposed? And he's not talking about people. He's not talking about humanity. And this is so important that we get this because it helps shape a lot of your thought. It also protects the silliness in our evangelism. 
I just see it all the time. You expect non-Christians to act like Christians. You expect someone who does not have the mind of Christ and assume they should be acting like they have the mind of Christ. You're treating them like they're the enemy. They're not the enemy. Your neighbor's not your enemy. Your spouse isn't your enemy. Other churches are not the enemy. People who don't agree with your doctrine are not the enemy. You know what the enemy is? It is a real, aggressive, controlling, powerful person who seeks to kill, steal, and destroy. And this is why you have to understand, that's why when the Bible speaks of non-Christians, it speaks to them as captives. Man, they're taken hostage, right? They're, they're enslaved to the kingdom of darkness, right? Too many times, man, you're aggressively going against the captives. You need to fight the captor. Don't fight people. I mean, don't, don't think they're the enemy. I mean, this, trust me, this will help you in empathy and grace and, and love and ferociousness in your zeal. Like, I mean, you got to know who you're at war against. Um, you got to understand who, what's happening. So, so that's why Jesus says, I came to set the captives free. It's this idea of this, this, this group coming under siege from a military advancement, and they take them hostage, right? And they're trying to break free, and yet we know the glory of Christ, and the work of his gospel breaks us free from our sin and our shame and our condemnation and our idolatry. We know that Jesus does that, right? That's good news for us. Jesus came to set us free. So our war is not against people. The war is against demonic rulers, authorities, and cosmic powers in heavenly places, that's why the more you seek to advance the kingdom of Christ, the minute you decide to follow Jesus, don't be surprised at the pressure that increases. Right? Don't be surprised at that. Any of you know, if you have a small bit of intelligence, that I'm probably not good at basketball. Right? Like you take one look at me and you know I'm, I'm not tall and I'm a little broad. So, so, Basketball does not mix with me. I, by God's grace, I've enjoyed a lot of sports that I love to play. But if there is one sport that I personally, spiritual gift was not flowing in, it was basketball, right? I am all torso, no legs. My vertical goes, is negative. I go down when I try to jump. No joke. So, so I've got this. Now, now here's how God is sanctifying me. Uh, my son, who's five, the one sport that he's leaning into aggressively is basketball. <laughs> so actually God was some of you last week. I was like, hey, can I get any tips? I'm like, I don't know how to like teach him or train him or sh- I don't know, like tell him what to do. I was like, Jackson, man, ain't no help from mom and dad. Look at us. You ain't going to get help. I mean, I gave him a lacrosse stick at one week old, just praying that that would just like stay in his hand. I have a picture of it. I bought it on Amazon, two inches long. Just, just hold it. Don't let go, man. Godly sport. Use it. I played in college. That's what I, so we even try to like do that. So, so everyone knows that basketball is not my thing. So a couple years ago, I'm with my friends from home, and, and we're getting together for a reunion, and um, they have the bright idea. Let's, let's, let's do something. I'm like, yeah, let's go play soccer. Let's, let's go play football. You know, let's go be real men. And uh, not, not against, you know, you're not a man if you play basketball, but but they say, man, let's play basketball. I'm like, oh, you know, man, let's watch a movie. So we go, and we... And we, we get on the court, five on five, captains. No, I'm not taking Reed. I'm not taking Reed. I'm last. I'm dead last, right? I, I get on my team, and then, then I'm like, no, I get it. I get it. Five on five. There's seven of us. I'll sit out first. So I, I go to the bench. I'm comfortable, happy, excited. I don't need to step in. Guy gets tired. Need a sub. All right. Lord Jesus, show up. So I get on the court. I do not know honest before the Lord 
what it was about this particular day, but the Holy Spirit fell (laughs) with fire. I mean, I was draining every shot my hands touched. I'm telling you, I hardly make the backboard, and I literally am draining threes. It's just amazing. So, so what started out as, man, like Mike's just, I mean, who cares about Mike? Don't cover Mike. Don't. I started getting double teamed. And I'm like, this is awesome, right? Like I'm fired up. So I'm just like in, right? It's just everything, everything else is good. And everyone's like, what is going on with him? How, why is he playing so well? Then I got triple teamed. Then the whole team's getting going. Running. We got to find a way to guard Reed. Where have you been for five years? What, what happened to you? Man, listen. Listen, there, is, there are certain things where pressure is a good thing, right? Man, we're, man there's, there's, there's pressure against you because you're doing something. Man, you're advancing a cause. Man, you're, you're believing in something. Listen, listen, if you are sitting on the bench, right? If you're just sitting on the bench, who gives a rip about you? You think, you think the, the enemy of darkness and cosmic powers and authorities really care? I mean, you're just, you're not seeking to strive after holiness. You're not looking to put sin to death. You don't really care about the gospel of grace. Church is a spectator sport where you just show up and clap and play the part. I mean, you think they really care. You think you're going to experience? They don't need to go after you. But, man, the moment, how many times in counseling have we met? The moment you make decisions for the king of the cosmos and then the prince of the air, just assaults you. Listen, do not be afraid of the resistance. Man, you should welcome the resistance. Man, when you start preaching the truth, telling people the true gospel, man, you should take great delight in that joy as the onslaught comes. Man, there should actually be joy in that. You don't need to be fearful. You don't need to run. You don't need to be terrified or afraid. Man, there's a great robust courage in the Christian life. This is what Paul's getting at. Like, yes, there's cosmic powers of the authorities of this present darkness, but man, if you were off the bench actually advancing the cause of Christ through the power of his Holy Spirit, if you're actually doing something in his name, don't be surprised when you get shot. Like, don't be surprised when someone disagrees with you or brings resistance or when you're feeling just the oppressive nature of darkness that wants to prevent you from living in your marriage according to how God wants you to live, when he wants to prevent you from living with your kids as he wants you to live, prevent you from living as a follower of Jesus as he's asked you to actually live. Paul says that's the war. And you can go headlong into that because you know who your king is. You're aware of your enemy, but you know your king. And he's going to get into, here's your weapons of warfare. He's going to tell you how to use them. But I just want to encourage us. This is why he says you'll be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Look at 2 Corinthians 2.11. Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. So you've got to know your enemy. Paul says that. You've got to know your enemy. You've got to understand the battle that you're in. Knowing Satan helps us anticipate his work, and it allows you to walk in victory rather than a victim. That's what it does for you. So who is he? Well, he was a beautiful angel, guardian cherub, Lucifer. God created him. He existed to serve God and glorify God and bring fame to God. And in his pride, he wanted to be God, not worship God. He wanted to have self-exaltation, not God-exaltation. He fell prey to idolatry and pride, and God judged him for his sin and banished him from heaven. And he falls to the earth. He takes the form of a serpent, 
first man and woman are created, and he goes after them immediately attacking and assaulting God's very word. And he twists it, and he perverts it. Right? And then Adam and Eve fall prey to that. And after he is, seems to be victorious in that, God comes, reminds Adam and Eve and the serpent. My king, Jesus, reigning and ruling currently, leaves the throne, will come. And yes, he will crush your head and finally defeat you. Yet in the conflict, Jesus will be bruised. And he'll suffer physical harm. But he will crush your head. And then Satan goes, okay, well, I'm just going to use the rest of my existence, right, before damnation and torment, separation, he takes a third of the angels with him. They become demons, the demonic, the adversaries, and they are an all-out war assaulting God's people and working through the world's system to prevent as many people as possible from hearing the good, true name and renown of Jesus Christ, this Messiah, who will come to crush his head finally and fully. That's what he's after. Now, some people speculate, well, well, why would he continue after this thing if he knows that he can never win, if he knows that God has finally and fully will do it? There's speculation that maybe he was so proud that he had deceived himself and now believes God might be a liar who can actually be thwarted. Either way, he continues to do what he does. But here's the other piece you've got to understand. This is foundational. He's not equal to God. He doesn't share God's attributes. So, so he's created. God's uncreated. He cannot be everywhere. God can be everywhere. He's not omniscient. God is omniscient. He's different from God. According to Ezekiel 28 and James 4, we know the motivation for all of his works is pride and self-glory instead of humility and God-glory. That's why he will... Because of this, one of his most powerful allies is opposing God's people in their own pride. He will use your pride. You're already sinful with pride. He doesn't have to give, it, give you pride. He will use your pride. He worked to override your pride. It's also important to note that Paul says this happens on a cosmic level. I'm going to explain why. Look at verse 12. It says, against the cosmic powers, cosmic powers, over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We live in an infinite universe with infinite ends. Now, if, if you're not even a scientist, you know, the more that we get bigger telescopes and bigger lenses, it just blows our mind. We just see more of galaxies. We see more of the universe. We see more of the heavens. We're more in awe than we were before. Right, we're captivated by just the depth and breadth of the universe. So it's just the more stunning and staggering it becomes, the more that we see of it, of what God's made. So, so why, does, why does God create this massive universe when it seems like all that ever happens is on this little dot, Earth? I mean, it only seems like from our vantage point, man, this is all that's going on. Me, myself, and I. I'm a little cubicle, I'm going to drive to work, I'm on this highway, state of New Jersey, New York. Man, this is all that exists. Man, Paul alarms us and awakens us to a reality that is honestly beyond comprehension. Cosmic powers. Because this is not the only place things are happening. Man. I mean, the Bible talks about the, the demonic and, and satanic realm and the holy angels realm. In the universe, you see aspects of this, like when God sends an angel to answer a prayer for Daniel and a demon holds him up before he even gets there. 
This place where, where the spiritual forces are at war? It's insane. And we get a glimpse of that in places. But when you think about God creating the universe the way he did, understand that while there's a human realm here, there's a spiritual realm that is vast. Vast. Now why do I say this? Why do I point this out? I point this out to show you why Paul is so serious and so emphatic that you understand who he is and what's at, what's at stake. Revelation 12 says when Satan fell, right, he grabbed a third of the angels. Listen, it says 10,000 times 10,000 times 10,000. It's the highest word in the Greek language to give a number. That means there's an uncountable number of angels, which means with each, if, if even a third was taken, that's an uncountable number of demons. So it's not like, man, there's like three and they're all on that guy. So they're all being used. So like, I'm kind of cool to walk around. We're talking about millions. Millions of adversaries thwarting, working, deceiving, articulating, working against the kingdom of light aggressively, persistently, continually. That's what we're talking about here. That's why Paul is showing us in Satan's army, there's not a few. This is cosmic. The gravity of this is universal. So how does he operate? Well, there's a lot of ways he operates, and we could take time going through the different ones. We know he's a deceiver, he's a liar, he discourages, he condemns. But you know how he really operates? He operates through the system that is called the world. Now, I'm not talking about planet Earth. <laughs> um, I'm talking about the order that's in the world. But first, I just want to say something. There's nothing... I believe there is nothing in the Bible that ever speaks to or associates demonization with moral evil. Like, you're going to see a lot of things in the Bible, and this may surprise you, um, but demon-possessed people, if you look at the New Testament, they manifest bizarre behavior, like jump in a fire, they uh, scream at Jesus in the synagogue, um, they might have a physical ailment, um, but it's, it's, there's no illustration in the Scriptures of that manifesting in moral evil. Like, like this, here's what I mean. Um, he doesn't make you sinful. You are. Like, sin is, sin is in your flesh. Like, 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 sinfulness is a product of the fall, right? So, so you, you are sinful from birth. This is what we believe, that we were born in sin, that we do not want God, we do not love God. And, and, and so him knowing this, right, um, demons don't make people sinners, okay? So this, demons don't make people sinners. Uh, what they can do is, is overpower people who are already sinners and lead them into destructive behavior, self-destructive behavior, bizarre behavior. Here's why I say that. He will use his authority and his control um, through human agencies. And one, let me tell you one of the main ways he does this. And there's a lot. One of the main ways is through religion. It's one of the main ways, religion. So here's what he does. This is why Paul calls in the New Testament it a doctrine of demons. Because he knows there is doctrine being said that is driven by the demonic. Like it's not from God, it's not the truth, it's a lie. So you have to be careful. So he, here, he's very wise, he's very smart, he's very cunning. Those are all attributes given to him. So he does this because he knows by nature man is a religious person. Because he knows the conscience of you understanding the moral law written on your heart. 
And if you believe in cause and effect and you believe in all of this, you understand that there has to be a moral lawgiver, and therefore, that leads you to God. And so here's what he will do. The most natural thing for a human being to do is understand that because he has a moral law, there's a moral compass in some way, shape, or form. No one's going to argue that. So because that exists, he understands nothing can exist unless there's a cause, so there must be a great cause, therefore it must be some type of God. Whether you get to the God of the Scriptures, some type of God. This is inherent in understanding man. So here's the thing. Satan knows about your God consciousness. And if he knows that, then what does he do? He diverts you from the true God and he lays before you an endless array of false religions. And he's got an all-inclusive buffet. Something for everybody. Now for the legalists, man, just go to church more, just pray more, just give more, just show up more. After the blatant licentious, just become atheistic, just don't believe, just God isn't really real. He's got this whole thing done, and he's the author of all of those. And all of them have the same thing in common. All of them. And it's one thing. It tells man that salvation and right relationship with God can be earned. Every single one. Every single one. So, man, let's just get our eyes off of the good news of, of Christ's coming. I mean, he knows, man, Genesis 3, my head's going to be crushed. I'm going to be obliterated. So what's the one thing I can do is just try as best as I'm able to create and be behind every single false system that could exist to lead people away from the truth that Jesus saves, that salvation is a gift of faith, not by works, so that no one would find great joy in this good God. This is why if you just read parts, this is why in the serpent's war against God, it's not just his fallen angels he uses. He uses human agencies. He uses the influence of those living according to their sinful nature and flesh. That's why you just read the New Testament. Um, Some people, 2 Peter 2, false prophets who spoke for him. 2 Corinthians 11, false prophets and apostles who began ministries for him. 2 Peter 2, 1, false teachers who, oh, Galatians 2, false teachers who divide the church. 2 Peter 2, 1, false teachers who teach heretical doctrine for him. He uses false religion as his primary vehicle. You want to know why? Because man is naturally a worshiper. That's why he does it. He does it because man is naturally a worshiper. And because man has a conscience, because man has a sense of guilt over his actions, Satan invents religions that attempt to diminish that guilt and use any other means to cover it up. Any other means. Guys, this is serious. This is how he works. This is what he uses. And so he uses ideologies that range from extremely legalistic. So if you find an appeal in that, go that direction. Yeah, just go to church. And just believe that your attendance saves you. Yeah, just go to a group. And believe that your group is, yeah, just believe your association saves you. Just believe that your heritage saves you. Just believe your denomination saves you. Just, so he goes that route. Or, hey, um, he'll use something else that's irreligious, atheistic, Something for everyone. All to lure us from the one solution to our sin, which is Christ, who came and lived and died and rose 
all to obliterate the works of darkness and glorify his name and give us joy and allow us to walk in freedom, not as captives, but set free as sons and daughters in the kingdom, given an inheritance. What an amazing transaction. This is why we need to know our enemy, but we also need to know our king. Look back at verse 10. Be strong in who? The Lord. Jesus Christ. And the strength of his might. You stand in this war, not by just knowing your enemy, but by knowing your king. Like, you just knowing your enemy is not enough. You need to know your king. And there is one king. His name is Jesus. And he's king over everything. And Satan is the prince of this air. He is not king. A prince does not have full authority. A prince does not have full rulership or ownership. A king does. And a king tells a prince what to do. This is why you've got to understand the devil is God's devil. He's on a leash. He has parameters. God sets them where he can operate, where demons can operate. This is why in Ephesians 1 you have to remember that when he rolls out that ridiculous, amazing work that God does for you in Christ, he reminds you that this Jesus Christ is set over every authority and above every name. That's every human name and every spiritual name that he has full authority over. And they're all under God's control. So Jesus is our king. It's why he's saying you're going to need his strength because yours won't do. Um, Do you get that, that you can't serve Jesus for a lifetime if you don't have his strength? Like like you you can't love your spouse for a lifetime without Jesus' strength. You can't raise your children for a lifetime without Jesus' strength. You can't be a faithful church Leader, minister of the gospel without Jesus' strength? You can't endure what you're called to endure without Jesus' strength? I mean, you need him. He don't need you. It's, it's this war fought by his strength, ultimately in the power and presence of his spirit, the same Holy Spirit that was in Jesus that helped him in his exhaustion and his battle and his aggression, yet he lived without sin. Is the same spirit once he leaves, he imparts to us. It says, now I'm empowering you and allowing you to live through that power that sustained Jesus Christ in the face of assault from the demonic, whether in the wilderness, whether in temptation, whether in hunger, whether in need, the same Jesus will send his spirit, the same spirit that girded and guarded Jesus is ours. So he says, be strong in his might. We're going to learn how to do that in weeks to come by looking at the weapons of warfare and what that looks like practically. This is what he's laying before us. That's why, man, I've, I've tried to fight by my own power. I lose very quickly. I don't know if you've been there. Um, I've tried to endure ministry through my power. <laughs> you need his strength. You need his perspective. You're going to run out of steam really quick. To do the things that you can't do but are called to do are only meant to be done through the supernatural. They're not meant to be done through you. Picking yourself up by your bootstraps and believing more in yourself. And uh, We stink. I mean, you're great for a season. You need something that lasts. You need something that endures. And I love it. And he gets the glory and we get the joy and that's the Christian life. Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Even in the face of the enemy. Look at what our king has done to this rebellious prince of the air. We'll end with this. Colossians 2.15. He, that's Jesus, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Paul's not talking about Rome in this text. You read this, the, if you read the book, he's not talking about Rome. He's talking about the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. 
And it says that he disarmed them. He's talking about spiritual realities. The scriptures are saying that Jesus has triumphed over them and presented them to open shame. Man, I love this visual. It means to publicly humiliate. Like they they think they have power, they think they have authority, they think that they can do what they want to do and Christ in his gospel on the cross makes a public spectacle of them and strips them naked. And they're just humiliated, realizing their authority only goes so high that they're still under the king and he's king whether you bow your knee or whether you don't. Like he's still king, he's still ruler, he's still God, he's still good, he's still all-knowing, he still has a plan, he still has a will. It doesn't matter what you and I do, that still exists, that doesn't change. He's a God that doesn't change, he's a God that's always good in all that he does, and he's showing that he triumphs over them. He's, it's in the line of the gospel in this passage of scripture that in the cross of Christ, these demonic influences that once had our allegiance, when you give it to Jesus, they no longer can control you, they can just pester you. So it's like, get off, right? It's like a bee, pull out the stinger, it just runs into you. It can't really do anything anymore. That's why we appeal to the great gospel. You'll see it over and over and over. Everyone in the New Testament talks about the work of Christ in the gospel. There was this disarming that had to happen because we were all captives. And he sets the captives free. You need to know that this is real and that your enemy was not people, that it was the spiritual forces of evil and darkness, the cosmic powers over the heavenly places. Brothers and sisters, do you realize that this word in Ephesians 6 we're going to look at is a word for the church, not just you as an individual in the church. It's a call to us as individuals, but a call to us as a church who are laboring and warring together, who are suiting up together, who are ascending the hill together, who have an enemy that hates us, (laughs) not just you, if you love Christ. It's a word for us, a word for you, but a part of a word for us as church at Bergen. Jesus loves us. Satan hates us. He has plans for us. Satan wants to oppose us. Do you know that? Do you know that? Like, are you aware of that in interactions, in prayers, in relationships? Are you aware of that? Are you aware that the, the, the seed of bitterness is not just for you to be bitter? It's to do something much larger. To create a ripple effect that would damage and harm the cross and work of Christ and his bride, the church. Do you know that he wants gossip and slander? Not, 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 not just because you, so you'd be a gossiper or not like it. He's much more smarter than that. Who cares? Unless it affects something. Unless it creates a wave of something. We're so aware of these things. The ways that we've been given and stewarding what God has given to us. Now, most Christians don't know this. Most Christians think that we live in a therapeutic culture. God's like a life coach, comes along, gives you tips for how to live, how to be better at your job, live for your glory, get what you want. Man, God does not exist to bless you. He exists, we exist to worship him. Listen, this ain't some playground we're on. It's a battlefield. God ain't my life coach. Freaking king and warrior. Savior, God, king, rescuer. I was in Satan's grip. This isn't someone who comes along and wants to tweak me and, hey, let me help you with your life, man. He wants to make you brand new and save you from destruction. That's the only good news. How is it good news otherwise? Why love Jesus? Why follow Jesus? Why worship God if he's not this God? If he has not done this work of reconciliation, if he does not done this work of redemption, if he has not disarmed the rulers and cosmic powers that are at war, who cares? 
Don't show up. Don't worship. Don't get involved because that Jesus is puny and insignificant. He is not a good king. And he is not one worthy of worship. Man, you want to serve a God who is too big for you to worship. He's too big for you to enjoy, right? That's the God of the Scriptures. That's the God of the Bible. It's the Christian. Do you know this King Jesus? Do you know that you're a captive to sin if you have not trusted in Christ? Do you know that he holds the keys to the kingdom? He can unlock the prison cell through the life, death, and resurrection of his work. Do you know that he loves you? Do you know that he's for you? Do you know that he's after you? Part of the evidence is your presence here this morning. That he might even use this gathering to open up your eyes and heart and woo you to his name. Do you know that's mercy? That he'd be kind enough that you would be invited by a friend or a coworker or a family member. The Christian life is war. Listen, the closer you get to Jesus, the more resistance you'll get. The more you advance the kingdom of God, the more shots you'll take. It's a very deceptive lie to believe. Things are hard. It must not be God's will. Usually, friends, the harder it gets, the closer you are to the heart of God. So what do we do about it? We stand. We stand. That's next week. Let's ask for help. God, thank you that you're a God who's in authority. Thank you that we know you as king. Thank you for revealing to us the things that we need to know, we need to see, we need to believe. Father, would you help us as a people, as a church, as a family of faith? Would you help us in our collective warring against the spiritual forces of evil? Thank you for the gift of prayer that even now, you say at the end of this text, we can pray with all supplication. We can appeal to the one who's in charge and ask you to do what is impossible. So, Father, would you put hedges? Would you protect, Father? Would you allow the good truth of the glory of the gospel to be shared and said and heralded that many might find repentance and faith in the work of Jesus Christ? Would you protect us, Lord, from deceit? Oh, Father God, would you protect us from wandering, from enticements, from temptations that are not of you? Father, would you be at work even in one soul this morning who does not have a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ? Might you bring them to your throne at your feet, not seeing you only as king, but humble servant on a cross who came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And I want to encourage you individually to talk with the Lord right now. And ask him to reveal where you might be unaware or not spotting the war of darkness. Your enemy is not your spouse. Your enemy is not your friend. Your enemy is not your neighbor. Your enemy is not your boss. Your enemy is not your church family. Your enemy is not those who disagree with you in doctrine. You do have a real, live, breathing enemy of God with cosmic authorities and powers and adversaries. Ask him to show that to you. Where is their unbelief? Where are you wrongly fighting? And where do you need to wage war? Say, Holy Spirit, show me. Holy Spirit revealed it to me. 
Help me learn how to use the weapons of warfare. Help me to remember who you are as my king. Help me to be aware of the schemes of the devil to not be outwitted by him. Father God, I pray that you would help us as a church and that you would, not just with this church, but your church in nations and tribes gathering across the globe, some in horrific circumstances with no freedoms, in fear of losing their lives. God, protect them. God, might you continue to hold back the enemy of darkness. Might we not be afraid of this, might we also not overestimate this? God, help us to walk the line of seeing with clear eyes and walking in humility and awareness and courage. God, I pray for those who are in a season where it just feels like assault after assault after assault. Father, would you help them to embrace, embrace the resistance? Would they lean into it through the power of the gospel and help of the Holy Spirit? Would you remind them that you're at work, that you have not abandoned them, that you are good, that you are pruning and refining and making them more in the image of the Son, that you have not left us as our general, that you are a commander-in-chief, that you have an army that has already won and will finally win. Thank you for your grace. Encourage our hearts as we sing in Jesus' name. Amen.